You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. We are about to break the surly bonds of gravity and punch the face of God. I wish I was a little Left Jab Productions present Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. And now your host, Dave Zarn. The Schmada Kid. Boom! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. I'm Dave Zarn. Joined, as always, by a man who is starting for the Philadelphia 76ers on off days, <laughs> Daniel Baker. DB, challenging Tony Roten for that small forward spot, man. Well done. Going for that rookie of the year, Dave. Rookie of the year. Rookie of the year. That's what they're playing for for the 76ers. And we got the coach, Kevin McNutt. How you doing, coach? Dave, inquiring minds want to know, were you on the seventh game of the World Series or the opening season of the NBA? Oh, my goodness. You know what? That's a great question. Oh, thank you. No, it's a great question because I was, like, glued to both for a while. Uh-huh. Back and forth. You know, my heart was wanting to see the the Wizards, a.k.a. the Bullets, in their season opener against the, the Heats. And, and then I'm going back to Game 7. But I got to say, when Madison Bumgarner got mm-hmm. out there on that field and did the five-inning relief performance Marathon man. on two days rest, mm-hmm. that's the only place my eyes could be at that point because mm-hmm. I have to say, Basketball history does not happen on opening night. Right. <laughs> but baseball history happens in Game 7 of the uh, World Series. Yes, we got a hell of a show this week. We are going to talk to, frankly, one of my boyhood heroes, uh, Carl Banks, a member of the All-80s team um, in the National Football League and the author of a really remarkable piece called Blackward Thinking about um, all the problems going on in the Seattle Seahawks locker room. Alleged problems. Alleged. And we're going to talk to William Brangham. He's a terrific reporter at PBS NewsHour about concussions in youth soccer. 
And we're going to talk to Omololu Babatunde, who is a senior at the University of North Carolina who just organized a rally on campus about the scandals engulfing the connection, the connective tissue between the athletic department and her department, the African and African-American and Diaspora Studies Department. So we're doing three interviews this week, Mm -hmm. Coach. Load it up, man. Sounds good. I tell you, yeah, load it up, load it up. Let me ask you this, though. Uh Uh-oh. You're the third baseman, third base coach. Do you send that runner home? No. You hold him off at third? We're going to talk about this in the final segment. I I get a little bit torn on this. I want to ask what Dan, what he thinks, too. Because I got to say, I've gone back and forth on this thing. Clearly. You're saying no. Dan, he knows nothing about basketball, and he's showing that he knows nothing about baseball either. How dare you? Why is he in the prime seat chair? How dare you? (laughs) I I know know so much about baseball, man. Bruce Bochy calls me up for advice. We got to go to break. We'll be back right after this. Nice. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. We are back here on Edge of Sports Radio, joined by the coach, Kevin McNutt. How you doing, coach? My man. And we are so excited about the show this week. We got some great interviews on tap. Our first one is, first, let me set the stage. Mm -hmm. Last weekend on the esteemed television program, PBS NewsHour, what they did was they followed a journalist named William Brangham and his efforts to learn more about the threats of concussions Mm. in a certain youth sport. Yes. Not football. Not football. Not football. Well, it's called, well, great. Which everybody always (laughs) talks, yeah. Well, maybe it is football if you're outside the United States. But everybody always talks about concussions in youth football. It's been the subject of a lot of inquiry, far less in the world of soccer, a sport that uh, Mr. Brangham's uh, three children all play. So happy to have William Brangham on the show to talk about what he learned. Mr. Brangham, are you there, sir? I am. Hi, Dave. Hey, great to hear your voice, man. Nice to, nice to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So first and foremost, bef- what did you think going in to this investigative report? And what did you learn? And it, did it differ from some of your expectations when trying to learn more about concussions in youth soccer? Uh, it did. I mean, I uh, fully admittedly, my wife and I, we have three young kids, and we became the proverbial soccer family by design. You know, our kids played a lot of different sports when they were little. But when it came time to join a team, we, my, my two older boys, I have two boys and a girl, my two older boys showed an interest in playing football. And we kind of cut that off. I mean, we had seen and read and, and seen enough of those horror stories of what goes on that we decided that football was not an okay sport for them to play, tackle football. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of steered them to soccer as one of the things, try this. And it just so happens that all three of my kids loved it. And very early on, as I reported in the piece, our pediatrician found out that my kids play soccer. And he just floored us. He, in the middle of a, of a visit with my 10-year-old son, looked him square in the eye and said, I hope when I see you next year, young man, you're not playing soccer anymore. Mm. And, you know, my, my wife's and my jaw hit the floor. Same with my son's. And the doctor's argument was, and this is just a local pediatrician in our New Jersey town, he was saying he had seen over the years dozens and dozens and dozens of kids coming in with soccer-related head injuries, some of them that, like, changed these kids' lives forever. And he was warning us off. Now, at the time, we kind of took his argument and we sort of put it on the table, kind of pushed it aside, and then our kids kept playing and they kept loving the game. And so we kept going. But then over time, I started seeing more and more stories. You'd hear anecdotes about kids getting a concussion going up for a header, kids getting banged on the head on the soccer pitch. And so during the World Cup last year, when I saw 
um, this article about Brandy Chastain and a bunch of women from the U.S. Uh, World Cup team who were now trying to take concussions, I mean, take heading out of youth soccer for kids under 14, I thought, you know what, this is a really interesting story. And that's sort of how the whole mm-hmm. process began for me of looking at it both from a personal perspective, but also looking at it as a journalist. It, so that's how it all started. Let, let me ask you this. Uh, uh, there's an argument with regular football that even when played correctly, even when people tackle correctly, you get these p- concussive hits, these these regular hits right. to the head that w- will cause these kinds of concussive injuries, uh, even if you play it in, you know in, in, with perfect form. Is there evidence that in soccer that if you head the ball with perfect form, you know we're talking about the forehead, the hardest part of the human body that it can cause the possibility of similar minor concussive injuries that build over time? Um, The evidence is limited. There is a study out of Albert Einstein School of Medicine here in the U.S. looking at about 30-something adult amateur soccer players, and they showed that those people who were heading the ball at quite a few headers, like 900, 1,000, 1,200 headers per year, did show signs on these functional MRIs that they did of evidence of concussions in their brains. Now, granted, it's a small study, and 900 to 1,000 headers, 1,500 headers is is way more than most kids I know ever had the ball. Mm-hmm. But there are similar studies that have been done in Europe, and but again, they're they're small. They're 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 looking back, so they're relying on on players to report how many headers they did. They're not really following people over time. So there is anecdotal evidence, some some scientific evidence that heading the ball a lot can be a problem. It seems to be that under a certain level, it's not so much. But again, even the, even the people who are arguing to take heading out of the kids' game, not the adult game, they, they admit that the science is still not there yet. Mm. Talking to William Brangham, investigative journalist who just did a report on concussions in youth soccer. I'm curious about the Brandy Chastain aspect of this. Has she received any backlash from USA Soccer uh, for, first of all, you know, having this platform because she is so well known in the soccer community and for uh, promoting know, the idea of no header soccer? I, I asked her that. I mean, I said, who, have, you, have any of your professional semi-pro colleagues called you up and said, don't do this. You're ruining the game. And she said that nobody has said that to her. Um, again, I don't know if people don't want to come out and publicly say that, especially because she is sort of a, a darling of the of the soccer in, in America. So uh, she said she's gotten no pushback from it. She said that she has basically gotten a bit of a stone wall from FIFA and U.S. soccer and the American mm. Soccer Federation, the groups that she argues have to be the one to embrace this change if that change is going to happen. But she said she hasn't um, – she's received no pushback. Uh, we tried to reach out to them as part of our reporting, and they all told us that – I don't know if, you're, if your listeners know this. There's a lawsuit that's been um, filed by a group of parents out in California, soccer parents, who are suing some of these big – uh, soccer governing bodies, FIFA included, arguing that they haven't done enough to protect young kids from head injury. And so that's made these organizations kind of clam up. But some mm. of them told us quietly and off the record that there is some discussion about this. There is some movement to try to figure out rules that might protect kids in a better way. But, you know, I, I, frankly, I heard a ton of pushback from people who, who argued, one, 
that you're ruining the game. That, okay, why don't you just take the queen off the chess set and still call it chess? No, you can't. Uh, my 13-year-old son is one of the big people who, who argues this to me. He's like, Dad, what are you going to do on a cross when the you got to mm. cross that ball in there? What, you, it's tailor-made for a header to score the goal. And so there's that argument that, one, you're doing some grievous damage to the game. Brandy argues that you're just taking it out for kids. They'll learn the more important foot skills, and they'll hone those skills, and then they'll be better players when you can reintroduce it at age 14 and on. You hear similar arguments that people make about football, like Tom Brady, who didn't play tackle till he was 14, has said it made him a better football player. Sure. You know, and then there's the other argument that this is, uh, just the, the, the bubble wrapping of American culture, that we're mm-hmm. all so mortified about risk and we get our knickers in a twist if there's any potential danger. So let's just put our kids, pad them in foam and keep them in the basement so they never get hurt, never get a splinter, never scrape their knee. And, you know, I, I get that. I don't want to be one of those parents that's flipping out over every latest health scare. But, you know, when someone like Brandy Chastain, when someone like this doctor up in Boston, Dr. Robert Contu, these are... These are world-renowned, he's a world-renowned neurologist, mm-hmm. studies youth concussions. And, and Brandy Chastain, I don't think you could ever argue that she's trying to damage American soccer or make American soccer players less competitive on the world stage. I, I think you have to take the words they say, uh, you, give them a more, you give them more weight in my mind. Okay, so last question for you. Uh, has this affected how uh, your own kids play soccer since you've learned this report? Are you thinking of maybe keeping them out of the game or trying to start a non-header league for them to play in? Is this changing your behavior as a parent? It changed our behavior in the sense that we asked our kids not to head the ball. Mm. They're in a league. They, their, their club is concerned about concussions, but it doesn't seem that the rules are changing at the state level, at the national level, anytime soon. And we think our kids get so much out of playing on a team and so much out of, out of being on the soccer field and the exercise and the teamwork and the camaraderie. And it just, I just think it's unarguable that the benefits are massive. So we've said we don't want you heading the ball. And mm-hmm. so far, their coaches, it hasn't made a real difference. I mean, one of my sons a goalie, so it's less an issue for him. Mm-hmm. My other son's a defender. It's, it's not so much of an issue for him. Uh, my nine-year-old daughter is like, thanks, Dad. I'm sort of mortified about hitting my head on that ball anyway. So mm-hmm. she's fine to have parental authority. That's awesome. Hey, so we're going to, um, if, if the segment's online, we will tweet it out at Edge of Sports so more people Great. can up, see it. It's up and viewable on the NewsHour website. Oh, fantastic. William Brangham, thanks so much for joining us on Edge of Sports Dave, thanks Radio. thanks so much for having me. Big fan. Oh, big thanks fan of yours as well. We got to go to break right now. We'll be back right after this. One, two, Don't give, one, give him my best. Two, move. Three, Dave Zirin will be right back with more Edge of Sports Radio. You're listening to Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We are back here in Edge of Sports Radio. Our next guest is actually a, a, a boyhood hero of mine, longtime linebacker for the New York Football Giants, member of the all-decade team of the 1980s, mm-hmm. and he weighed in powerfully, powerfully on the reports that members of the Seattle Seahawks, unattributed anonymous quotes, uh, questioned Russell Wilson's quote-unquote Blackness. His piece is called Blackward Thinking. I've tweeted it. I will tweet it again. His name is Carl Banks. Mr. Banks, how are you doing, sir? I am doing great, Dave. How are you? Doing very well. It was such a powerful piece. And so my first question before I ask you about the content of the piece is what compelled you to write it? 
I often have these these moments where I just brain dump and you know thinking about all the issues that go on in sports and just some of the the noise that's created. And you know, I started. To, and if you read into the article, you'll see I kind of got into a lot of the issues that are plaguing the NFL, and this one just kind of brought it home mm-hmm. to uh, just really make me want to just um, explain, you know, some of the dynamics of what goes on and, and, and what's so stupid about other things that, that happen in sports. And this one in particular, I mean, it it's obviously has touched a nerve across the sports landscape, this idea of what is blackness? Do you feel like, is this a discussion that you feel like is common inside a locker room, particularly locker rooms that are predominantly African-American? Do they line up on that basis sometimes? No, that's the, that's the dumbest thing about it. Now there's ignorance, obviously, um, that exists in every locker room, but, you know, to really have something like this come out and clearly there, you know, allegedly clearly, there are some star players that this has been um, loosely attributed to. And, and I just thought it was just the most damning thing because that's what tears your, your team apart more than anything else because the only color that really matters in a locker room is the jersey color. And um, second to that is probably the color of money. Other than that, you know, a guy's ability to win a football game is not based on his, his race. I mean, he's there, and I didn't hear anyone say that Russell Wilson really showed his blackness while winning a mm-hmm. Super Bowl. You know, so it is—it's the dumbest thing, and it's—but it's, you know, it, it sparked kind of a a, uh, a touch point for discussion uh, to have dialogue on this, but to also shed some light on just ignorance and and how some people think about this issue. Coach, you have a question for Carl Banks. Hey, hey Carl, congratulations on a great career and, and what you're doing now. You know, I, I, I read your article uh, several times. This strikes to me of an issue of self-hate. Uh, when you when you sit up there and say, is he black enough? Now, now, let me connect the dots and, 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 and see if you agree with this. You know, when, when I hear that about are you black enough, I, uh, you're talking about um, versatility, being multi-talented, being multifaceted, being well-equipped and well-schooled. So, in other words, a Russell Wilson, not only is he can he uh, uh, be a good athlete, he can also go and speak to management, speak to the media, and so those are, those are all gifts. That's, that shows he's well-rounded and his versatility. So now you have those same skills on the football field. You're admired. Everybody loves you because that sure. speaks to you know your gifts and talent. So I don't understand how the football field being versatile is a good thing. And then here, you know what I'm saying? You, you, because you are glib and personable and marketable, all of a sudden you aren't, you aren't black enough. No, you're, you're 100% correct. And I think it, it is a, um, a function of self-hate. It's jealousy. Um, but, you know, there are two cultures we deal with. We deal with the culture of sports, which should be colorblind, especially when it comes to your, your, your teammates and a person's ability to really help you um, function in, you know, in a construct of brotherhood, fellowship, uh, and competitiveness. And then you have a a culture that, you know, a lot of young men come from um, that it may have been a self-hate upbringing. It may have been, oh, you don't have street cred unless you go to jail type of thing, which is so backward 
when Russell Wilson is the guy that everyone should aspire to be. You know, I would want my kids to look at Russell Wilson and say, hey, that's an example of how you carry yourself on and off the field. And um, I don't know what his personal life is, but, you know, overtly, he looks like a guy that I would pattern myself or have my kids pattern themselves after. Carl, I want to read to you what I thought was the most profound sentence in the entire article and then ask you to explain it. I mean, this this was just beautifully, beautifully written. I mean, I kind of wish I'd wrote it, which kind of makes me mad at you. But other than that, um, I don't, you know, got a little bit of the jealousy. All right. But, but you're from Michigan State, so I, I'm green with jealousy like I went to Michigan State. Okay. You, okay, so it says, we are trained to talk around race rather than about it. So we end up talking about, quote-unquote, racial legitimacy instead of deeper real issues, like why the league's perceived crime issues are viewed heavily through the lens of race. And you give some more examples of that as well. And I think that that was so profound because we, we talk about race all the time, but we tend to talk around it with these kind of little tempests in a teapot instead of the broader structural issues. Why do you think in this country there's like this constant but, but very wrong-headed obsession with race? It's like we're always talking about it, but it doesn't seem like we're having the right kind of discussion. Why do you think that is? Because it's easy, Dave. It's easy when you can take one bad apple and say, this is exactly what's wrong with the sport. This is exactly what's wrong with that culture. And no one really wants to have a a deeper discussion on it. And, you know, when you look at a league that's 66% black and you have 53 men on a roster, um, the amount of crimes and violence, at least that's reported, is if you take that same amount of people in society on a daily basis, it's low. Um, And per year, it would be even lower. But um, there are so many dynamics that teams have to be better at, that players have to be better at as well. Because you also, if if I can for a second, just, just look at the era in which these young men grew up. They were in the they were in the um, late '80s '90s era. That may have been the worst period of American society when it comes to the self-destructive behavior, uh, the crack epidemic, and mm-hmm. you know a lot of these kids. You have kids that raised their parents that are playing in the leagues. You've got right, kids right. that were homeless. You've got there's so much that these young men have been subjected to. But that doesn't say that every one of these kids that came from a bad environment didn't get themselves better. That actually goes to the next question I wanted to ask you because you write in the article that that one of that people don't take a step back and realize that a lot of these players are dealing with issues like, and these are your words, fiscal literacy and being the first generation of their family to ever go to college. And, And you're right that that's the issue. Is there a way that either the NFL or the NFLPA can help these players? Is that the right way to look at it? Or do we just have to say, well, first generation, sink or swim? No, you know, it's in their best interest to do that now. Because what we found out and what the commissioner found out is that you can no longer say, well, one bad apple won't spoil the whole bunch. Because what Ray Wright, what happened with the Ray Wright situation turned the NFL on its ear. True. And now everybody's looking for the next thing. Um, and so it's in their best interest because 
again, the, the talent pool that the NFL has been picking from is the, are these young men that are that are products of this this um, environment mm-hmm. or, or this culture, or their society. So if you're not going to do the things that will help not not only the player be better, but be better for your organization and for your league, then you're going to suffer the consequences of all the things that he didn't learn. That's Mm -hmm. just the reality these days now. Because there's social media, because there's so much going on, you've got to deal with the anger management issues or the antisocial behavior of kids. You can no longer just say, well, he's being him as long as he, when he comes here, he does okay. Can't do that anymore. Mm. Powerful stuff. Coach, you have one more question yeah. before we run out of time, please. Carl, this is such a, I mean, I, I have highlighted so much yellow on this thing. It's, you know, your whole article is almost in yellow because uh, I have so much meat and potatoes in here. And, and this is a must read for our, for, our, for our viewing audience here, listening audience. You write this. The point is, contrary to public perception and popular media narrative, bad behavior is not an NFL problem a player problem, a black problem, or a class problem along with players. There are coaches, general managers, trainers, team secretaries, and others who have dealt with the depressing issues of drugs, violence, abuse, and alcoholism. And my point to that is, and I I get in arguments with this, take any group of society, take them out, and you can find out that they have a higher rate of uh, uh, incidents with the police than, than NFL players. And I can start with the congressmen of this country. What say you? Sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But it also it also dovetails into this whole narrative of when people are upset as to why teams keep giving these players second chances. And the short answer is because the players can help them win. The real answer is because they deal with the same issues in their life. Mm. When you look at some of the tragedy that struck some of these coaches over the last couple of years, when you look at you know, owners and general managers that have had their issues, you know, well-publicized, then you see why, because they all look at it as, okay, if this were my family member, I would give him a chance if he's willing Mm -hmm. to straighten himself out. So it's all one big, you know, when you look at why they do things the way they do it, it's because they have to deal with it also. Mm. Carl Banks. Carl, when are you going to write your book, man? If you want to write a book. I just, I sit around and have, Brain dumps, but I have a ton of notes. Yeah, okay. I could do it one day. Look, I'm cu- I'm curating a sports book series with Akashic Books. You ever want to write a book? You please hit me up. Okay, we'll make I that. I will definitely do that. We will make sure. that happen. Just brilliant stuff. Thank you so much, Carl Banks. Thanks for joining us on Edge of Sports. And thank you, and keep up the good work, man. Oh man, Carl Banks, ladies and gents. Sincerely, I mean, boyhood hero of mine is just great stuff all around. We got to go to break right now. We'll be back right after this. Dave Zirin will continue with Edge of Sports Radio after the break. Dave Zirin returns on Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. We're back here on Edge of Sports Radio with the coach, Kevin McNutt. Our next guest is a student organizer at the University of North Carolina. She's a senior geography and African-American, African and diaspora studies major in Chapel Hill. And she has been organizing uh, as part of a rally yesterday around the grade-fixing scandal, which the media 
has centered on the on the African and African American Studies Department. And we're going to talk about some of the problematic nature of the focus being on that. But of course, we're talking about it on this show because of the ways in which this scandal has intersected with UNC's storied athletic department. Her name is Omololu Rafilwe Babatunde. Omololu, how are you doing? I'm doing so well, Dave. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, it's our so privilege to have that you. You're covering this. I want to ask you why you held the rally yesterday, what the aims of it were, about the athletic department. But before I do, as someone who's been covering this story, your coalition is called the Real Silent Sam Coalition. And I would mm-hmm. love it if you just explained to me why the coalition is called Real Silent Sam. We have this in a school called McCorkle Place, and it's like the entrance to UNC, and there's a statue there called Silent Sam, and that statue is meant to commemorate all the um, Confederate soldiers who died during the um, Civil War, because, you know, our, we are the first public university, so, of course, the university has this history. What people don't know is that the statue was not erected during, you know, right after the Civil War. It was erected in 1913 during the height of the white supremacist movement Mm. in the United States. Yes. So it was erected in a way to insert terror in, you know, the black individuals living in this time and in this space to say that despite the fact that they're free of bondage, you know, we're still have power here. And even like during the, um, the ceremony when the statue was erected, Governor Carr at that time made this huge speech saying that we have to save the Anglo-Saxon race and that at this very spot is where he used to whip a Negro wench. So it was a very racialized, like, monument. And the Real Silent Sam Coalition actually was born out of a fact of trying to bring some type of um, contextuality to these sites that are very racialized mm. and that which our university has just, like, placated and just been like, oh, no, this is just a commemorative one from history. And it's like, no, that's not really true. It's like... This is history is very complex and very racialized, and we need to be talking about it because it's being repeated in our present, which is, you know, what we're seeing with the Weinstein Report. Got it. So, yeah, that's where the name comes from. So it's like let's learn about the real Silent Sam, not the mythologized exactly. version of Silent from, Sam. Exactly, exactly. And um, so that's one story and that one action that went around that um, monument and built the name of our group kind of shows what's Silent Sam tries to do. You know, God, that story <laughs> reminds me so much of the Confederate battle flags that were adopted during the 1950s. Um, mm. and, you know, the state flags in places like South Carolina and Georgia, you know, as symbols exactly. of terror against the civil rights movement, not as exactly. symbols of history. Uh, I, let exactly. me let, let me ask you this here. You you, you held this rally yesterday. Uh, um, how how big was the rally? What were the aims of the rally? Mm. That was my question. Mm-hmm. So the rally had like a pretty good turnout. Um, it was like at least 150 to 175 students and faculty and staff. Nice. Members were there and community members um, and tons of like media, which was great and surprising. And we were really holding the rally, not so much in protest to the administration, but just to create a space for more complexity to be to be addressed to this issue because when I read the report and when many other students read the report, we were like angry mm-hmm. and like sad. And we like, at first we were like confused. Like, why are we angry? Why are we sad? We're like, wait, because this is like very racial. Like how mm-hmm. are they scapegoating this huge systemic problem onto one space? And what space are they like 
skateboarding on a black space. This is the only space on campus that I have ever been like seen, heard, understood. All my professors there have always just been so supportive to me. But you're saying that this is like the site of academic like deceit and like villain. Like they were just villainizing this one space, like held so much of my identity. And I feel like that's what people don't understand. Like when you come to attack um, a discipline like African African American studies, that's not just like any old discipline. This is a discipline that was struggled and fought for, and this is a discipline that's representative of a people and an experience. So like. When they were attacking this site that so many of us hold our identity in, it was like they were attacking our personhood. And we were just like, sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. No, If I start talking, you talk right over me, please. That's it. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So we were just like, we just wanted, we just really wanted for this crap that the media was doing that like really took the attention away from like our societal issue with value and how we value mm-hmm. certain bodies in this in this world and like how when athletes come to the school they're really not valued as any intellectual beings but instead they're just valued as you know like physical bodies that can produce more profits so we're like well no that's 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 effed up one two what's effed up is that like yeah this one department becomes like a scapegoat and the only reason it's a scapegoat is because you know black studies is not valued and how and then three like how does this mirror our experience at UNC where, you know, like, yeah, okay, cool. We have access to the space. I was like, at this university. That's great. But like how now when I'm at this university, I, I don't feel like I'm recognized. And the only spaces where I do feel like I'm recognized African space and American space environment is being villainized. So that's it, really what we want to do. We really just want to create a space where students could express their frustration and anger. Is there anger in the African and African-American studies department that the athletic department seems to have used it as a way to launder through athletes to keep athletic department profits up? Can you repeat that question again? Sorry. Is there, oh, no, it's okay. Is there anger inside the African and African-American studies department and among your peers and the people that rally? Mm-hmm. Is there any anger directed at the athletic department for mm. using and abusing your area of study as a way to keep mm. athletes on the court and keep the cash register ringing. Yeah. So actually, that is so interesting. That point really has not been brought up, but um, it is definitely... Someone actually did bring up this point, which is very similar to what you're saying, kind of relating it to how are people feeling about the athletes who, quote-unquote, chose to take these classes some of these black athletes. Oh, no, I want to be very clear with what I'm asking, though. Not anger at the athletes themselves, but anger at Roy Williams, the athletic department, the adults who are supposed to be providing Mm. guidance for these young men and women. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I got confused. Yeah, no, there definitely is anger in regards to that situation because, again, these are people that are supposed to be trusted. And... And it kind of goes into, like, how this one discipline is not valued, that you can say this is a space where, okay, can just be thrown away. But, no, it definitely is, especially in a space where these coaches are supposed to be the people that, you know, these sports players look up to and can grow from. And if you would want to be someone that, you know, gets so much admiration from these students, you would hope that they would be doing it in a way that allows these athletes to grow in so many different faculties and their capacities. And, like, my experience in that department has been, like, learning so much about myself. And it's just so mind-boggling that, like you said, because of the direction of these higher officials, they were really 
just as an opportunity to learn more about how they can be and exist in this world, regardless of, like, their physical vigor and all that, but, like, relating themselves to, you know, the people that came before them. And that's, like, that is so sad. So, yes, mm-hmm. there is definitely outrage amongst how people in power have misused their power to kind of get people from the type of exploration, like existential exploration that comes from any type of um, studies of the, you know, people from that, of that you origin from. We're talking to Omololu Babatunde, um, a senior at University of North Carolina. You're on campus. You're obviously very plugged in to life on campus. Do you mm-hmm. sense any sort of backlash? Does it exist at all? against Roy Williams, the most high-profile member of the athletic department? Is there any of that on campus at all happening? It's so funny because Roy really is like a um, very beloved individual here. You know, like we have um, Late Night with Roy, and he's the, you know, whole, what's it called, symbol of that. So there has been, so it's, it's very strange for us to come and look at him in a, in a, different lights, you know, in a more negative light, and that's very strange. But there definitely has been some type of poking to his character that has been going on, specifically in our newspaper. There was just an um, article that was produced about, you know, like his his involvement in this and what does that mean, and now people are bringing up how much he makes in correlation to these athletes. So I think slowly and slowly as we, like, uncover the more and more of this issue, people are going to start asking questions of these more powerful beings. But then at the same time, I hope this, this is a chance that we can single out not just these coaches that are at UNC, but coaches that are all over the country mm-hmm. that are profiting off of these bodies. So I'm really, I'm very, very um, a bit um, afraid to kind of pinpoint it on just this one site. So I hope this becomes a UNC and this quote-unquote scandal becomes a time when we can really take a deep breath and look more nationally at this issue. And that depends, like, so much on, like, you know, the NCAA, and I don't know, I don't, I can doubt that they'll do that stuff, of course, because whatever, yeah. Yeah, because they, they incentivize um, these, I mean, that's why we, we're even exactly. talking about this as being a national issue, is because the NCAA has nationalized academic fraud as a way to keep exactly. the cash exactly. registers going. And that's all that we're asking. We're really just asking for people to connect the dots. So, yeah, a dot that needs to be connected is to coaches and, like, their role and respect they have from athletes. And, like, okay, what does that look like monetarily? Like, you know, the coaches are making this much, much, you know, students aren't doing, making anything and blah, blah, blah. Okay, this is happening at UNC. How does this connect to what's happening at Duke? How does this connect to what's happening at, you know, Notre Dame? What, how does this connect to what is happening in all these different spaces. And until we can really take it upon ourselves, and it's very hard, especially in this neoliberal climate that we live in, to, like, expand outside the individual and, like, what surrounds you. But, like, we really have to pressure ourselves to be able to take the space to, like, zone out and be like, ooh, this is happening in all these places. Why is it happening in all these places? Something must be, like, really, really messed up for this to just be, like, happening everywhere. Now, one of the the media villains of this story, a name that I've seen far more often than Roy Williams, is the the former chair of your department. And I don't want to mispronounce his name, but Julius Leongo. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. What are people inside the department? What what is the feelings these days about Mister uh, Professor Leongo? Some sentiments are: first thing, you can't have a chair who was chair for twenty five years showing the 
the neglect to the department, mm-hmm. also the like obviously the, the administration knew what was going on. Like how can you have him from this long who's it kinda of seemed like something that maybe he was under, you know, under the um of the administration and you know, you're allowed to stay in the space if you do these certain things. What's the next step and how can people learn more about what's happening? So I would say just keep your eyes at Chapel Hill. The media has really just made its own narrative, and students, and it's the job of the students to contest that narrative and to share voices because professors really are not in the position to do it because of this climate that really anyone that speaks out is, like, thrown out. So what are they going to do to the students? You really can't do anything to us. So us students are really rallying. Dave, I wish you could have been there yesterday. It was such a healing, 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 healing moment because so many students who have just felt like they have not been seen, to get all these sites that are marginalized on campus to unite, because this could have happened at Women's Studies Department or the Asian Studies or the Latinos, anything that's not valued in our society, it could have happened in these departments, and students are rallying. So if I were you, I would keep on looking at UNC, because things are going down here, mm. and things that, are, that need to be seen on a national level and need to be talked about on a national level. So, yep, just keep on watching. Omololu Babatunde, thank you so much for joining us on Edge of Sports Radio. Thank you. Have a great day, Dave. And thank you so much for talking about these issues. Oh, fantastic. Hey, we got to go to break right now. We'll be back right after this. Edge of Sports Radio with Dave Zirin. We'll return after this. Edge of Sports Radio returns. Here's Dave Zirin. We are back here on Edge of Sports Radio to wrap up the show. Three terrific interviews in the can. But Coach... If I'm the third base coach, a third base coach, am I really going to be responsible for the last out of Game 7 of the World Series? Take the decision to win the game out of the hands of my players, out of the hands of Salvador Perez, who was coming up to the plate? Am I really going to—you would have done that? Dave, that is so far-fetched even managing you on the field. Matter of fact, if you got on the field as a third-base coach, you've been hauled away to Mealy. But anyway. You would have waved Gordon <laughs> around third. You do not wave him on. The ball was in the shortstop's hand just waiting for him to gun him out. Secondly, he's on third. with me. You got to right. Wait a minute. Early on the, on the lead, and you said you should hold him up. Man, I go back and forth. You're right, Coach. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I, right. And I flip back and forth for this simple reason. They weren't hitting Madison Baumgartner. They weren't hitting him. And they would have had to throw a good throw home to get him out. And he would have been out by a mile. You had Perez coming up, right-handed against a lefty. You're on third. You do not send that man to his, to his death in the World Series at that point. No. Yeah, but you're also you're banking on a case of the yips in the San Francisco relay team in the outfield. And you know what? I'll tell you this. If Gordon had been running hard, and I don't blame him for not running hard because it's not like he was watching the ball, but if he'd been running hard and rounded first hard, he would have gotten home. But he was doing it slow, but obviously because he thought the guy would grab the ball. You, but if, oh, so if, you think he wasn't hustling all out? I think he wasn't hustling all out, but you don't hustle all out in that particular base running situation. And speaking of that, you just said something now. Bumgarner, all you needed was a blue pit, just like he got. All you need was a blue pit. You need an error. You could hit. You know, you could find against a guy who has the lowest ERA in World Series history. I got you, but you had a runner at third. You had a runner at third. That's not a World Series, dude. Uh, (laughs) I mean, Jesus, that's a a micro fraction. That's not zero point. I mean, that's unbelievable. Zero point two five. That's your free throw percent. And by the way, I don't know if you saw this. He came in. He was he was batting three three twenty four. 
at the, uh, for the series. Yeah. So you can't. You don't take the bat out of his hands. And okay. at, at third, now it's definitely at, at second. Are you, at third, all you need is a Texas leaguer, a little CNI ground, and a third game time. A tied. ground ball with eyes, says Coach. <laughs> How about that? Coach, I know about baseball. Once again, you're smarter than me, even though you don't know anything about baseball. That's what I don't know what that says about my level of knowledge. Hey, for Dan Baker, Coach, I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace! Edge of Sports Radio, where sports and politics collide. Tune in next week and go to edgeofsports.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.